It seems we stood and talked like this before We looked at each other in the same way But I can't remember where or when The clothes you're wearing are the clothes you The smile you are smiling, you were smiling then But I can't remember Where or when Welcome friends to the George Sanders Show That dour intro we just had from Mr. Frank Sinatra uh, can only be used for one show and one show in particular. Uh, the George Sanders Show, Genocide Spectacular. Tonight on the show, we're going to be discussing a couple of films. Uh, the new latest release from Joshua Oppenheimer, uh, The Look of Silence, which is a quasi-sequel or a companion piece to the uh, well-regarded act of killing from a couple of years ago about Indonesian genocide and the ramifications of that uh, and then tying that in with a film beloved by many uh, on the 50th year of its release, The Sound of Music. Um, Sean, is, Sean is eager to talk about that one, I can tell you right now. <laughs> <Hi>. <laughs> Fasten your seatbelts, everybody. I, I, this is going to go down as a monumental this, episode of The George Sanders this, this will be a very dark episode of The George Sanders Show. <laughs> Sean looked deep into his soul <laughs> for three hours. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sound of Music is directed by Robert Wise, who has a very interesting career, had a very interesting career. Um, and uh, he'll be our person of the week. And we'll pick our essential 60s blockbuster musical, which I was told before we began the show would not, would not allow me to pick films uh, maybe that were French and about umbrellas or starring Ringo Starr. So... Um, Hmm. So I've been I've been told that I, I have to winnow my searches. While down. while a hard day's night was a big hit, I don't think it really qualifies under the kind of the kind of thing I'm looking at. I'm looking at like the super production musicals. I understand the studio understand. era, right? Uh, that's okay. I think I've got a good selection here. Um, a hard day's night is great, though. It's really good, and I think it's you've really picked good. it as an essential before for something else. I wrote about it on screen scene, but yeah, I probably did. Yeah. Um, I just actually got, uh, have you seen the magic Christian? No. With Peter Sellers and Ringo. Um, as everybody knows by now, I'm a huge Ringo fan. Mm. <laughs> uh, and I think Olive or somebody just put out the magic Christian on DVD and it came through and it's something I've been wanting to see for a long, long time. I started the book a couple of times. I never got through it. Terry Southern's book. Um, although I did like candy. Um, anyway, I don't know. Maybe with the next What's Mike Watching, we'll talk about it. Anyway, uh, on with the show. Oh, we're listening to Rogers and Hart. That was what uh, we we introed in here, Frank Sinatra. Um, obviously, seen, Sound I've of seen, Music. I've seen The Magic Crystal. 
I've seen The Magic Crystal too. Is, yeah. that, is that close enough? The Wong Jing film with, with Andy Lowe and Cynthia Rothrock? I, I think that's... Uh, it's close enough. Okay. We'll, we'll let it slide. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, anyway, Rogers and Hart, because uh, Sound of Music is uh, half, of the, half of the du- duo. Yeah. <laughs> it's, and, uh, yeah. The good half of Rogers and Hammerstein is also in Rogers and Hart. <laughs> I'll let you do the math on, on who that is. There you go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, without further ado, let's hear a clip from uh, The Look of Silence. Saya menganggap itu tidak besar. Bagaimana mungkin tidak besar? Satu juta orang dibunuh atau lebih. Soal dia politik. Tadi kepihak perasaan imama tinggal cerok di antara pembunuh anak imam. Seandainya aku berbicara di era Orde Baru sama Bapak, apa yang akan Bapak lakukan dengan aku? Okay, so three years ago, uh, one of the most well-regarded films uh, of the year was a documentary called The Act of Killing from a a first-time filmmaker, kind of. uh, At least that's his first big impression Joshua Oppenheimer um, who chronicled uh, people responsible for genocide um, in Indonesia um, decades before um, and he followed them for several years and and basically had them reenact in different uh, film genre styles the um, crimes that they perpetrated on on humanity um, and got into a lot of you know the psychosis of these guys and, and how they kind of, you know, buy into Hollywood myth and stuff like that and see themselves as like a John Wayne or something like that. Anyway, well, well regarded. I really love the act of killing. Um, the question, one of the questions of this conversation will be how long until Sean mentions the missing picture, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) I know it's coming. Uh, but I was a big fan of that. Anyway, uh, that's all setting this up to uh, now, three years later, uh, The Look of Silence is just getting a release um, in, in cinemas. And it's uh, also about Indonesian genocide. It's a very different movie. Um, this this film um, is smaller scale. There's not these big reenactments. There's not Hollywood myth making going on. There's not that kind of angle to it. And it follows um, one man, really, who whose brother, who he never met, uh, was killed um, in the in the '60s, long, long, long ago. And um, 
and his kind of investigation or his, him confronting those that were responsible um, directly or indirectly for his uh, brother's death. Um, and, and Oppenheimer said that he conceived both of these movies at the same time, that they were their, their companion pieces, um, this being the more intimate one. Um, and, and the reviews for this one are, are equally as strong, if not stronger, than The Act of Killing. Um, Sean, you were a little more lukewarm on The Act of Killing than I was. Do you think that this gives a better picture? Or does, does, this, does this shade in stuff that maybe you felt was problematic in The Act of Killing? Does this, is this a stronger feature? Do you feel like they work together as a whole to become a bigger than the sum of their parts or whatever? Um, what do you think about this in comparison? Uh, I, I preferred this to The Act of Killing. I think, uh, I think the, the personal angle of it is, is much more compelling uh then the kind of media critique that that the act of killing i think kind of goes half-heartedly at uh i think i think the personal story is is much more interesting here um but it doesn't solve all of my concerns with the first one and it's not so much like i don't know that the act of killing when it when it did get criticized there was a a, a woman a documentarian who wrote uh, this uh, this essay that everyone was talking about for a while. I think we may have even talked about it on the show. Uh, I think we did about how it uh, it lacked context and and history, and it wasn't you know kind of properly explaining everything that went on for for the audience, and that documentary shouldn't do that. Documentary should be around to educate, and. I think on the on the one hand she's she's right to criticize the film for for lacking that on the other I would never phrase it as it's something that a documentary should do. I think that's what we that's I think what our discussion was back then was a documentary does not have to necessarily be and I mean a lot of great documentaries are educational you right. know um but there are also Werner Herzog ones or other ones that are more of give, just giving you a, a unique experience or something like that yeah and i think i think uh that this film is is just as susceptible to that charge as as the first one was because i i i am i am missing that context like i in making it such a a personal story it's it's trying to well, it, it's, it, it gives the feeling like this is something unique. This is like a horrible thing that happened in this place a long time ago, and its effects are still being felt, but it happened to these people far away, and maybe it was a, a, a byproduct of America and the Cold War, but there's no real examination of the Cold War and America's involvement in Indonesia. Uh, and frankly, the thing that was... You know that was most interesting to me about it is that this is not a unique event. These these kinds of killing, these kinds of massacres, uh, these these people who who commit these murders and then go on with their lives and get rewarded for it, that is not unique in human history. That that is the norm, and I don't think the film really comes at it from that perspective. I think it looks at it from, you know, a, a, a Western middle-class point of view where we don't deal with things like this so we are just horrified to see this stuff and i think it just leaves us in this position of horror 
rather than asking us to really the kind of confront human nature and hmm. how and how it exists in ourselves. I think See, I think there's a certain element of of look at you know this horrible thing that happened in the third world isn't that terrible that goes on. In that's the, interesting because in I don't see that at all. Because I totally read in both of these movies, I do. I do feel like there's a, um, at least an underlying uh, examination, or or, or 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 I ask those questions to myself watching these movies, like or or think about how this is not unique, and this is you know this is one example of the absolute uh, depravity of man. You know, um, I, so I don't, I mean, I do have an issue going back kind of what you're saying. Um, this one, you talk about context. I feel like this one, it could have used a little bit more of getting you up to speed. Like if you went into this cold, like if you hadn't seen the active killing or you didn't know about the history of what, what happened, this movie doesn't really give you enough to get by on, in my opinion, like it really doesn't well, on, on the one hand, it, it doesn't for the story that it's telling because the story that it's telling is, is a man is, is, you know, is taking a camera and confronting the people who killed his brother. And you don't really need to know why they killed his brother beyond what they say, because they, they give you the reasons why they did it. You know, they right. talk about it all through the film. Like he was a communist there were, the state ordered us to kill the communists, so we did. Yeah, uh, but I but I feel like I don't know. Like I was watching it, and and about twenty thirty minutes in, I was like, it, it feels maybe a little too uh, self contained in its own little bubble. I mean, at least for my for my my take, I much prefer the act of killing uh, to this, and um, and I. I I can see the argument for why this is the stronger film. I, th I you know, I think that this is a little bit uh, more. I don't know if mature is the right word, but like I can see there's an austerity to this, and there's you know, it, it it's a little more human uh, in terms of like just focusing on this one person and and his kind of personal. Yeah, I journey think I think having uh, um, uh, Addy, eighty. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it has the the interrogator. I think I think adds a lot to the film. Like it, it adds, I think he's, you know, that kind of personal touch and and his performance, for for lack of a better word, is really compelling. Like he's 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 a, a great yeah. surrogate. He's yeah. He. I mean, uh, I I don't want to go into motives or or what have you. Um, I don't know. If I totally believe Oppenheimer about when he said that he conceived of both of these movies at the same time, um, I, I feel like maybe along his, the, his journey, he met this guy and uh, and was like, oh, this is compelling, but this isn't the story I was planning to tell. And I also I feel like with The Look of Science, and we can get into this in a minute, I feel like this, this is also, it feels a little bit more of a corrective, like... Um, he had read some of the criticism that was that was aimed his way for active killing, and maybe he's got the forethought to to have seen that from the very beginning when he conceived this thing years ago. I mean, decades. I mean, it was you know, there's the footage that he shows in this movie um, on laptops or whatever to the victims or to the to the those responsible. Excuse me, um, 
was shot like 10 years ago. So he's been working steadily on this thing for a long time. But yeah, I think, I think the, the video of, of the interviews, I, I think at one point it's dated to, to 2012. Somebody, somebody gives the, the date, um, right, which is, which is, which is, is when active killing was released, I think. Right. And, and, and I, I can't help but try and play my own game of inside baseball here, but it does, it does feel like this is a more self-conscious film in terms of, um, at least Oppenheimer's, uh, I think you know, it, it feels, it, it feels very, very manufactured in, in a lot of ways in, in, in its editing and in, you know, it's, it's so like perfect a narrative mm-hmm. with because you have you have the two parents they're still alive and the dad is is like old and withered and blind and deaf and his mother is still alive and the people who you know committed these crimes are still there and, and you know it it all fits together so well and that's you know it's part of its achievement because I don't think it's faked. But it, oh yeah, I don't it, think it's fake. I, it feels and and in a lot of like the the cutting and the interviews, I'm I'm like wondering, you know, how many cameras do they have set up for these interviews? Because there's there's two shots and there's close ups of both of the people and they're in their intercut, and I'm not sure if they're doing like a William Hurd and broadcast news kind of thing, or if it actually is all shot live. Because there's there's something about it that feels. If not, if not fake, then then surreal. Slight. I feel a, a slight bit of manipulation, maybe yeah. behind behind some of that. Like you're talking about the editing and stuff, where it feels like because he's got so many cameras, he can hold a beat longer than maybe it actually played out in reality. Once again, I have no basis for this in terms of you know, right? I, in terms of you know, I don't know any behind the scenes information about this movie, but I it did give me a little bit of sense. I got a sense of like I felt there was much more, uh, once again, self conscious kind of manipulation maybe going on behind the scenes in this. And going back briefly to Active Killing, um, what I like about Active Killing, um, in terms of of its narrative, is I kind of more prefer the let's give these guys enough rope and and have them hang themselves. You know, um, I do appreciate the confrontations that are here. There are a couple that are so unsettling and in a great way. But then there are other ones in this movie in Look of Silence where it just feels a little repetitive. It's like, okay, you know, you're you're going to these people. They're going to give you this, you know, they're going to deflect the blame. They're going to, you know, do these things. And I feel like Active Killing really builds this amazing crescendo of, of where someone actually, one of these people responsible for this genocide, you know, actually finally internalizes what the hell they've done and they break. And I think that that's, I don't know. I I feel like that is a stronger payoff um, than, than for an example, this movie ends with him not even, not only not, not confronting someone responsible, but uh, confronting his family. You know, the guy died years ago or a couple of years prior to filming. And so he he gets the sons and the wife in the in, in the room and he confronts them with it, which is fine. Like they also have their own form of deflection and stuff. But well, that's one uh, of the really compelling things about the story is is that it's the consequences of the genocide fifty years later are ongoing and then they're not they haven't been dealt with 
by the society. Right. Like the people who did it are still in power. They're still rich. And like it, he goes really over the top with cutting between, you know, the, the, the very wealthy, uh, houses of the perpetrators of the genocide and the, the, you know, the very, uh, uh, poor conditions of his parents. Right. Who were the victims of it. Right. Uh, and I'm not trying to say, you know, I, you know, we're comparing the, the movies and stuff. I, I think this is a, a worthwhile movie. I'm not trying to just, you know, tear it apart or anything. And I, and I, and I do like the other side of the coin, so to speak, that it gives here. And, and, um, once again, I think that, um, Oppenheimer found a really good person to, to kind of, you know, tackle this personal journey. Um, yeah, I just, I wanted, I wanted more. I, agree. I need, I need I, more. I, like there's the, the, the movie is very, is very emotionally affecting, but not to a point of catharsis. Uh, which is intentional because it is unresolved. So you can't have an emotional catharsis there. So what it leaves, it just leaves me feeling depressed and sad. And, and that is not enough for me. Like I can't ever imagine wanting to watch this movie again. And, and and I can, and you know, it's okay to not, to not reach that. If it also gives me something to think about so that I'm going to think I'm going to watch the movie again and think differently about things or learn something or pick up on something I didn't understand the first time. And I don't think there's any of that in the movie either because it is just after that emotional impact and it is impacting and is very effective at that, but that's all there is. Right. I, I feel like there's, there's, there, exactly. There's, there's, there's no, there's nothing beyond that to kind of stew on or want to revisit or see how something like, yeah. Um, you kind of just get these, uh, emotional gut punches, um, that are punctuated with scenes of, you know, his family life or whatever. Um, but yeah, basically it's like five or six confrontations that, are uncomfortable and depressing and then it's kind of that's it (laughs) yeah and it's you know it's 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 shocking it's it's meant to be shocking like you see you see the people here the like the woman hearing uh her father talk about how he drank his victim's blood so he wouldn't go crazy and you see the shock on her face and we're meant to be feeling that shock as well it's horrifying people drink blood my god uh but you know, I I really did. This is what I was thinking about through this whole film. Is like that's what people do. That's what people have been doing for thousands of years. People are are violent and cruel, and and people like us uh, who have grown up in in North America and the West in the last fifty years uh, are really the only generations of people who have not had to deal with violence like this in our lives. Hey, speak for yourself. I get up every morning. <laughs> Make my waffles and and drink a cup of blood, my friend. Yeah. Stir you know, keep the craziness at bay. Yeah. Um, for for everyone else throughout all of human history, like war and war crimes are just a fact of of existence, and it's you know it's it's uncomfortable for the film to position me as the default state when it's actually. Indonesia in 1965, that is the default state. Yeah. Because I feel like, I feel like we're being positioned to look, 
to look down at that. See, I as like we're more evolved or more more advanced than that. When I it, all evidence is that this is just a brief lull in history. Well, once again, I I I, I could see a little. I I saw a little bit more in this and and the previous film of of this is what we are capable of. Like, I, I don't, I don't see this kind of, you know, condescending kind of tone that you, that you see necessarily with it. Um, yeah, but, eh. and I don't, and maybe I'm just like feeling like the, the perspective of the outsider because it, because it's not an Indonesian that's making this film. It's, it's Joshua Oppenheimer. He's not making it about something that happened to him. It's about, he went to Indonesia and he discovered all this stuff and he's reporting back to us. Well, but at the same time, you know, a lot of the people responsible for this movie are Indonesian and, but right. they, for, you know, I mean, I think he even has a co-director, but they're known anonymously. Right, they're, they're anonymous. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's not like he's just, uh, you right know, and and you know you 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 joked about the missing picture but but that that is the film <laughs> that I think <laughs> that is the film that I think that 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 solves all of these problems because it's it's a personal story it's very dramatic but it also takes a broader view of 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 humanity and of human culture and and why we do things like this and and attempts to seek out some kind of resolution with history which I think I think Oppenheimer's films are more content to just kind of wallow in the misery of of this event rather than come to terms with it. See, once again, I feel like the act of killing does do more than that. Like, yeah. I, I feel like that movie's got, you know, it, it does kind of run on uh, kind of concurrent tracks um, where it deals with more than just that kind of stuff, but... You know, once again, I missing picture. I know I need to see it. I've checked it out. I just haven't gotten around to it. Yeah. You know, it's hard to watch these. I mean, I know that's a different kind of movie, but you know, yeah. there was uh, Don't Think I've Forgotten, the the Cambodian rock and roll movie that I watched at SIF about you know once again genocide and uh, mm -hmm. all these great artists that you know were completely wiped off the face of the earth because they, you know, expressed themselves. Uh, you know, and so. You know, I only have a stomach for this stuff. You know, I can only handle so much at a time. Sure. Um, and, like, there, there's a wider context to the story of the Indonesian genocide that has to do with the Cold War and, and the way that, that, that the, the advanced European powers kind of, uh, in, in making peace amongst themselves, created all of these proxy conflicts in the third world and the way that that those countries really paid for our ideological interests and instead of uh the united states having a war with the soviet union it became the capital having a war against poor people throughout the third world uh and that would be a really interesting subject for a documentary but but this is not that documentary he does throw in a, a a very he makes an interesting choice because he does throw in one news report from the '60s, like an NBC news report where they're right. interviewing somebody, and that is a tantalizing thread. That um, it's it's curious that it's there. Uh, it's a reporter interviewing uh, uh, someone from the military or, or one of these, you know. Um, splinter groups about killing these communists, and it's so matter of fact the discussion that he's having. Oh yeah, we killed them, threw them in a ditch. Da 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 da. On NBC News in the '60s, like uh, you know, like it's a good thing, and that's you know, hooray, hurrah, hurrah. Um, but he only does it for one snippet 
um, which gives like once again it shows a brief kind of glimmer of of the the larger context of stuff. Yeah, uh, and and it might it's you know it it's it might be just a matter of personal preference. Like I prefer an Adam Curtis type documentary that gives me like a, a, a broad narrative of history that, you know, puts forward a theory of why things have happened the way they are and now they're connected. And as opposed to something that just gives me the direct emotional experience. And maybe that's just because I'm weird. Well, it's certainly weird. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but of like the documentaries that have come out, like in this show, like this is technically a 2014 film, but uh, a lot of people will be counting it on their 2015 list. I, I would, I much prefer Adam Curtis's Bitter Lake for for that reason. That it just it gives me a narrative to follow yeah. and to try and understand and and think about and and uh, comprehend. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you know, to keep the depressing train running here. I think we, it's time we listen to another uh, Rodgers and Hart tune. Yeah, and it's really hard to to. Pick, it was it was pretty difficult to pick songs to go along with with the look of silence because we don't want to be flippant about you know genocide, but we are the George Sanders so so. So you know what are you gonna do? Uh, yeah, we spent you know I think we spent more time trying to figure out what Rodgers and Hart songs to play after everything than this episode will actually uh, last. Probably. <laughs> uh, but here's Chet Baker uh, with f- Funny Valentine. Is that what we decided on? Yeah, Ch- Chet Baker and, and my Funny Valentine. Because so much for flippancy. Blood. <laughs> Dear God. Yeah. My Funny Valentine Sweet Comic Valentine You make me smile with my heart Your looks are laughable Unphotographable Yet you're my favorite work of art Is your figure less than Greek Is your mouth a little weak When you open it to speak Are you smart? But don't change your hair for me Not if you care for me Stay little Valentine Day is 
Valentine's Day. You know, you don't really hear the name Chet anymore. Yeah, no, just Ch- Chester has gone out of fashion. Yeah, it's kind of gone, right? I mean, it, I, it'll, it'll probably be back soon. I feel like yeah. there's like stay-at-home dads in, in Brooklyn that are naming their kids Chester. <laughs> yeah, that's coming down the pipeline any minute now. Yeah. Um, it's time once again for everybody's favorite part of the show. Uh, what's Sean watching? Wherein Sean tells us what he's been watching. <laughs> that is that is a a much discussed and much beloved part of of the George Sanders show. People always ask me what what, what you know, is Sean watching. What is Sean watching? And I say I don't know. Um, I I'm as I'm as eager to find out as you are. <laughs> Chat. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, this summer uh, the wife and I have been watching a bunch of uh, BBC literary adaptations because it's summer and there isn't any. TV on that we want to watch, so Rick that's and Morty, which is apparently a thing. Uh, so that's what we've been watching. We've watched three so far. We watched uh, the 1995 Pride and Prejudice with Colin Firth, and we watched the 2009 Emma with Romola Garay and Johnny Lee Miller, and then we just finished uh, the 1994 adaptation of Middlemarch with Rufus Sewell and Juliet Aubrey, and they're all pretty good. Hey, uh, uh, the Pride and Prejudice one is is the best. Uh, I think Colin Firth is is kind of justly famous for his uh, his role in that. He's he's really good, uh, and it is a really good adaptation of the novel. Like the the pacing is really good. Uh, it's shot pretty well. Like there's a lot of uh, it's interesting visually, which a lot of BBC stuff is not. Like no, the, it is not. The, the frames are really packed, and, and there's kind of chaos going on all around as the uh, the Bennett household is full of, of very loud girls. Uh, the other the others are much more kind of what you think about a BBC series. They're like very stately and 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 calm and sedate and, and a little boring. But but Pride and Prejudice is is pretty great. Uh, have you how seen long, how long is that? Uh, Pride and Prejudice is about four hours long, and I think that's the same for Emma. And then Middlemarch was over six hours. Uh, that had some good stuff in it, uh, but it was—I think it's just a too big of a novel, too big of a story to adapt even into a six-hour series. Right. Um, but but Pride and Prejudice and and Jane Austen, I think, just works works really well as kind of long-form television. I think her her plots are well suited for that. I don't know. Middlemarch is a different kind of, of novel, mm-hmm. a little more psychological, a little more uh, massive in its kind of portrait of a whole community, as opposed to just focusing on a single family and, and their relations, like Austin does. Uh, have you have you seen any BBC literary adaptations? No. Um, Lindy watched recently um, the one of those Sharps Sharp Sword or Sharps. You know, with Sean Bean, those are okay. BBC, I think. Yeah. Um, and I kind of half watched it, <laughs> um, yeah. but but to be honest, I don't think uh, 
I don't think I have. I've read Pride and Prejudice, and I've read... Uh, I don't know if I've read Emma, but I read, you know, years and years... You've, you've seen know, Clueless, though, right? Lifetime. Oh, of course. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, lifetimes ago. But, yeah. Um, yeah, so no, I have not seen those. Yeah, so I, I don't know what, what we're going to do next. I think uh, I want to watch some of the, the 90s movies that were British oh, yeah, adaptations. Yeah, Gwyneth Paltrow and stuff. Yeah, the Gwyneth Paltrow, Emma, the Emma Thompson, Sense and Sensibility. Uh, yeah. The uh, Age of Innocence is one. It's not a, a British novel or movie, but it's it's a movie I really want to watch again. Yeah, that's that's a film that I've I has kind of rocketed up the top of my list, and I still haven't gotten around to it, but uh, I do really want to see that. Yeah, that's one that, that the, the more I think about it, the more... You kind of look back at Martin Scorsese's career. I think, I think it might be like top five Scorsese. I think yeah. it, I think it's that good, yeah. uh, and I, I want to to revisit it to to confirm that. So I think I think that's what we, what we will be watching over over the rest of the summer is 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 some of those films, and then uh, some of the the movies we haven't seen yet. Like uh, uh, Kim wants me to watch Carrington, which she has seen and I have not. Uh, and there's a movie adaptation of Persuasion that's supposed to be really good that that we're gonna watch too. So uh, there's a Sally Hawkins uh, oh. in a in a Persuasion somewhere. Oh, yeah. yeah, I, I always like, love me some Sally Hawkins. Do you like Sally Hawkins? Uh, so speaking of of blockbusters, uh, as as anything with Sally Hawkins in yes. it is. Uh, do you have a, a pick for your favorite essential 1960s blockbuster musical, which is uh, stuff like The Sound of Music that uh, when it was, when they were hits, like The Sound of Music or My Fair Lady, they made a ton of money. And when they were failures, they ended up bankrupting the studio system. Right. Uh, yeah, I do. I'm, I'm kind of cheating here. Um but I'm grouping it in the theme here. I, uh, you know, we're we're listening to Rodgers and Hart, and um, you know, a, a good musical is only as as good as its music. Um, clearly, obviously, it can it, it can fail in other ways. But um, but I always, you know, as a as a uh, self proclaimed you know Disney nut, I'm a huge fan of the Sherman Brothers um, and the work that they've done. I even like It's a Small World. Um, as most people are clawing their hair out, I'm like, I think this song is, is really good. Uh, <laughs> so I want to give a shout out to the two films they did in this, in the middle of the sixties for Walt Disney, uh, Mary Poppins, uh, obviously starring Julie Andrews, the film that put her on the map and, um, just, a fantastic entertainment, uh, with Dick Van Dyke. And it's, you know, chock full of wonderful songs, super califragilisticexpialidocious and, um, all the way down the line. It's a film that I, haven't seen in its entirety in 20 years or so. Um, and I, I, I would really like to see the whole thing again because, uh, I, it's, it, I remember it being, and all, all signs point to it being just a fabulous entertainment. And it's, uh, it's a really interesting film in terms of, of, you know, the Disney studios history and all that kind of stuff where it, it really, sent them on a trajectory away from uh, animated films for a little bit. Um, uh, but my other selection is an animated film. It's the last animated film that Walt Disney himself was involved in uh, to some degree, and that's The Jungle Book, um, which also has uh, a ton of great songs by the Sherman Brothers. Um, 
coincidentally, uh, Bare Necessities is the only song they did not write for that film. That's by Terry Gilkeeson. Um, but they wrote, you know, um, everything else. You know, I want to be like you and stuff like that. And Louis Prima singing, I mean, King Louis stuff. I mean, it's, it's a catchy, catchy movie and it's a lot of fun. And those Disney movies to me are some of the, are, you know, when they're good, they're some of the best musicals around. So. Yeah. I don't think the Disney one counts, but I'll, I'll accept the same. (laughs) I'll accept uh, uh, Mary Poppins because that is a terrific movie. Well, I'm glad I, I, I'm batting 500 on that one. There. <laughs> uh, mine is, uh, I think, also from 1964. Are they both from 64? Uh, Mary Poppins is. Yeah. Uh, uh, My Fair Lady. Ah. Which, uh, uh, tying it all together with Julie Andrews, Julie Andrews started on the stage and then famously did not get the part in the feature uh, film because they they wanted a star which she was not in film yet so yeah, she went give, give her six months <laughs> yeah she she went and did Mary Poppins and then became a star uh, uh, Audrey Hepburn of course uh, uh, starred My Fair Lady and did uh, some singing uh, was dubbed for the rest of the time and, and of course Rex Harrison played uh, uh, Henry Higgins uh, I I think My Fair Lady is really really good. As movie, uh, George Cukor directed. It's, uh, it's just it's a beautiful film to look at. It's got just this amazing uh, set, uh, Covent Garden set that is exactly the kind of thing you you expect in a Hollywood blockbuster. Like it's totally artificial and it's just massive. Uh, the songs by by Lerner and Lowe are really really catchy and really clever. I think the performances are great. I love I love everything about My Fair Lady. It's everything that The Sound of Music is not. <laughs> we'll get there, Sean. We'll get there. Uh, I have not seen it. Sixties. You know, this was a difficult essential for me because. I haven't seen the big, you know, I haven't seen the Music Man. I haven't seen, I, I've seen uh, West Side Story, which that's 60s, right? That counts, right? Yeah, yeah. West, uh, West yeah, Side Story is, is very good. That would that would probably be my second choice. Yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, for the most part, a lot of these big, like you said, the big budget ones um, that the Hollywood studios produced in, in that decade, uh, I have not. A lot of them are, are really bad. Uh, it kind of depends on the director. Like uh, Oliver is one. I, I guess it's British, but not not really Hollywood. But but it's better than you think it would be. Mm-hmm. That was the Best Picture winner for I think 1968. Uh, the King and I is okay, but a lot of stuff like anything directed by Joshua Logan, you want to just stay away from. <laughs> That's like Paint Your Wagon or The Sound of Music, and yeah, that that stuff's just just dreadful. But Lee Marvin, he's always drunk and surly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, stay, stay away from that. Uh, my Fair Lady. You should watch My Fair Lady. I, I, I made my wife watch it a couple of years ago on like Christmas or New Year's Eve, and, and she she slept, uh, but I really loved it. So. <laughs> and I have I have the I have the album, and I used to play it for for the kids when they were young, and and they liked it. When they were young. Now, yeah, now they were they're, young. you know, three years old. and Now I can't get them to sit still long enough to actually listen to anything. So Ah, uh, I see. Give but, them a little, you know, cough syrup and, and they'll, they'll be sitting pretty. Yeah, but My Fair Lady, great movie. All right. Yeah, I, I should check it out. I mean, I, you know, yeah. 
I love Audrey Hepburn. So, yeah. uh, well, that ties in, you know, dovetails nicely into our uh, person of the week, Robert Wise, who not only did he direct uh, The Sound of Music, which we'll be discussing here in just a couple of minutes, but he also did West Side Story and uh, and a whole bunch of other things. You know, his career is very, I don't know if erratic is the, is the right word, but he's, you know, he made movies in... Uh, most every genre you can possibly think of, you know, um, from noirs like Born to Kill, um, which I detest and we can avoid talking about it because it's terrible, to Star Trek The Motion Picture, which is one of the last films he ever did. Um, and then in between, a whole bunch of stuff, um, including some very famous, you know, The Day the Earth Stood Still, House on Telegraph Hill, stuff like that. So how do you feel about Robert Wise? You know, he's, he's a titan in certain respects, box office-wise, but... He's he's one of those guys that existed in the studio era that would just do anything. He was a professional director who had very little directorial personality. He was he was extremely competent, but very not competent. but not what anyone would call an an auteur. Right. It's hard to find a, uh, a Robert Wise stamp on you know that kind of threads through all of these movies. Right. And that and that and that shows in the kind of up and down quality of of his films because some of some of his films are quite good and and i like a lot like like west side story um although i would credit most of what i like in west side story to to uh to the score and to uh jerome robbins who who co-directed and, and choreographed it but but also like his his debut film is uh curse of the cat people which is a, a val luton uh, movie that is that is really really good. Uh, I think we talked about the cat, we talked about the first Cat People. We did. It was our um, Halloween show. No, wait, yeah. was it our Halloween show? Yeah, yeah I think it was a Halloween show. show. Yeah. We talked about the the two Cat Peoples. Uh, Curse of the Cat People is is a sequel, sort of, but it's very different, and it's a it's a really uh, really kind of wonderful movie about a sad child. And it's it's really very sweet and 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 special and uh, he's he's you know he's very good. Uh, the setup I think uh, is uh, one of the very best films noir. It says uh, movie with Robert Ryan from nineteen forty nine, and it's is that just, the boxing one. Yeah, it's it's very very kind of stripped down, and uh, it's a, it's a really great film. Uh, the day the earth stood still eh, is fine. Executive suite is is one of the uh one of the more accomplished of this kind of teleplay type movie that you got in the mid 50s and then uh the haunting is is fine too star trek it's funny because i i don't have a movie of his that i you know it's been a while since i've seen west side story that i absolutely adore i haven't seen curse of the cat people but um I really dislike Born to Kill with yeah. Lawrence Tierney, and uh, you were about to say it. Uh, Star Trek: The Motion Picture is bad. I'm sorry. It's it's. I do kind of like the abstract twenty minute scene of just looking at the USS Enterprise and like having this symphonic score playing really really loudly, but it's a really terrible movie. Yeah, and we'll we'll get into this when we get when we start talking about the sound of music proper. But I think that a lot of what is bad about Star Trek: The Motion Picture is also bad about the sound of music. 
I think yeah. he kind of directed them the same way and to the detriment of both. And that's, that's kind of interesting. Um, the, the most, uh, the most notable thing that Robert Wise probably ever did in his career, like, uh, was his work with Orson Welles. Um, on the one hand, he edited Citizen Kane, which is terrific. He, he started, uh, started as a sound effects editor at, at RKO and the, or yeah, at RKO. And then he became like a film editor and he edited, you know, the best movie ever. Uh, and that's great. And then when, uh, he also edited, uh, Magnificent Ambersons and, and then of course, uh, we talked about Ambersons too. When, when Orson Welles went to South America, uh, RKO put Robert Wise in charge of reshooting the last half hour and supervising the final cut of the film, which largely butchered what, what Wells intended. Uh, so, so for good and ill, Possibly the best work he did in his career was in those two years, right? With Orson Welles. Well, when you, I mean, you know, I I could have done my best work with Orson Welles because I can just ride his coattails too. You know what I mean? Um, hey, <laughs> editor, editing. I'm just go? kidding. I know, no, it's very, very good. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful job. Yeah. Um, I our good friend. This is a little uh, behind the scenes stuff. Our good friend Pete Kerchinsky, who. Uh, was a old projectionist. I think we've talked about him a couple times in the show uh, that we worked with for many, many, many years at the the movie theater. Uh, he was in charge. The Seattle International Film Festival did a tribute to Robert Wise, um, you know, decades ago, and he was in charge of uh, kind of piecing together this montage, this reel of of, of the best clips of, of Robert Wise. And I don't remember exactly the titles that were, were bandied about, but Robert Wise was there while Pete was cutting up these films and finding the and the stuff. And he said that Robert Wise did not give a fuck. Like like <laughs> like Pete was like, You want me to include this? And he's like, I don't care <laughs> um, which I think is, is kind of amazing and, and a fun little story. I think that it would I think have been better if Pete, if we could get Pete on the show to tell that mm. story, because there would be a lot more swearing. Yes, uh, and there would be a lot more digressions into like you know union rules and and beer. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think I think that story says a lot about about Robert Wise, and it also says a lot about the Seattle International Film Festival that they would <laughs> organize a career <laughs> retrospective for for him, and that they would allow Pete to do the editing <laughs> on a. Uh, on a tribute thing. Uh, yeah. I love you, Pete. He doesn't yeah. listen to the show. He never will, but I love yeah. him to death. Uh, so without further ado, drum roll, please. Let, oh, by the way, another Pete Kuczynski thing. He was the original drummer for um, uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders. So that's pretty awesome, too. Uh, so here's a drum roll from Pete Kuczynski as we go into a clip from The Sound of Music. Thank 
cream-colored ponies and crisp apple strudels, doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzel with noodles, wild geese that fly with the moon on their wings. These are a few of my favorite things. So it was my idea that we should talk about The Sound of Music because we're doing 1965 this year on The George Sanders Show and The Sound of Music is the biggest film of 1965. It, it was, uh, I think it's still in like the top 10 all-time uh, inflation-adjusted box office gross. It won Best Picture. It won a bunch of other Academy Awards. We, we had to watch The Sound of Music this year. <laughs> and... But it was your idea to pair it with the look of silence. So oh, that's that is my fault. <laughs> I'm that not gonna gonna take full responsibility for this. Yeah, I take the blame, Sean. All yeah. my fault. All right, but you know this this is a movie that uh, I don't know if you had seen it before, but I had. It had been a long time. This was one of those movies that my mom would make us watch like every year. Like I think it was on a holiday every year, like Easter. Or, wasn't Easter because that's when we watched the Ten Commandments, but but it was on often, and she would make us watch it, and I hated it, and I hated <laughs> it as a child, and I hadn't seen it. I don't think I've seen it at all since since high school, so it was more unbearable than I imagined. <laughs> uh, because you know a lot of a lot of the musicals my mom had me watch when I was a kid, I did not like at the time, but as I've been a grown up. Uh, I've gone back and watched them and really liked them. Stuff like stuff like Kiss Me Kate or or My Fair Lady uh, are movies that I really like. So, you know, maybe The Sound of Music would be one of those. So I, I was actually optimistic putting putting the uh the disc into the machine. And then uh almost immediately I turned against this movie. It is it is it is bloated and overblown and boring. And the songs We'll get to the songs. Anyway, the, the, the plot, if you don't know the plot to The Sound of Music, uh, Julie Andrews plays Maria, who is a flighty nun who gets assigned as a governess to a taciturn former naval captain uh, and his seven children. Uh, she teaches the children to sing. She steals the, the captain away from his baroness girlfriend. They get married, and then they sneak away from Nazis and... Somehow, Robert Wise stretches that out to three hours. Yeah, it, it's a, it's amazing how little happens in this movie, and yet it's three hours long. <laughs> and not only that, but it, the that would be fine. There, there is enough story there that you can make a three-hour movie out of that. You, you make three-hour movies out of out of less story than that. I know, but when you're watching it, like well, when, it you're, when you're in like the second hour, you're like, nothing has really happened. It, it, it feels like that because even though there is so little that actually happens in the plot, uh, there is no development 
of the characters or of the plot or of the relationships between the characters as the movie goes on. Like Maria starts as flighty and she is flighty for the first two hours of the film and then she's in love. And, And that is it. The captain is taciturn and then he hears his kids sing and then he's nice. And, yeah. But he's still uh, affianced to the Baroness, and then he isn't. Uh, at one point, Maria uh, realizes that she's in love with, with the captain and is scared of that, so she runs back to the convent. But there's no attempt to, to explore her religious beliefs, to explore you know, her you know, conflicting uh, emotions, her commitment to the church, her commitment to the man. How is she going to resolve that? It's... It's not dramatized at all. Well, you literally don't see her. Yeah. Like at the convent, you only see her when she's summoned to be told to go back to him. Like right, and the then the, and then the nurse and... sings like a, an obviously dubbed version of "Climb Every Mountain" at her. Yeah. And and that is, and that is it apparently. Like, and that and that gets to to part of the problem with the songs is is I just I do not like Oscar Hammerstein. Like I'm, I'm sure he's a wonderful person, and and uh, I saw a documentary about Stephen Sondheim, and and Oscar Hammerstein was like an adopted father for Stephen Sondheim, and really like encouraged him and helped him with his work, and and Sondheim like idolized him as as a person, and I'm sure he was a marvelous person, and he's a very competent songwriter in that he has like some some you know clever turns of phrase, and his songs, his lyrics feel very, very elemental. They feel like something that you've known all your life. And that may just be because my mom made me listen to them all my life. Um, but his songs don't have any depth to them. There's no, there's no, there's nothing interior. There's no kind of soul to them. Like there are a hundred Lawrence Hart songs I would listen to before an Oscar Hammerstein song. And, <laughs> and that's part of the problem with this movie is because when, when you have a musical and you're not dramatizing the relationships between the characters, the songs are necessary to do that. And if the lyrics of the songs are very surface and not moving that forward at all, you have nothing. Well, and that's the problem. That's one of my main problems with this movie going back to its length and stuff. I can't think of a musical like I think the reason that this movie is so like fondly remembered and there's all this nostalgia around it and everybody loves the soundtrack and all that stuff is because the movie itself plays the song every song twice like mm-hmm. I can't think of another musical that does that that I mean uh, you know occasionally yeah you'll have uh you know uh the the main theme or something will come up later in the movie but there's a different there are two performances of almost every single song in this thing so that by the time it comes up again you have like a pavlovian response to it where it's like oh i know this and so you trick yourself into thinking that you like it because you know it because you heard it an hour ago but Uh, you don't that's that's like a that's like a later progression in the musical they start singing in the 60s and 70s like sondheim does that a lot like into the woods has like two versions of every song and it's a it's a more symphonic construction to the song where you have themes that, that get reprised throughout throughout the film. And Sondheim does it really interestingly. Like the characters change and the relationships to the song change and the way that you react to the song changes. Well, yeah, but as you're this saying, is just like the same melodies over and over again. And they're they're great melodies because Richard Richard Rogers is like an amazing creator of melodies. Yeah, and well like you said, the 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 songs here have really no 
bearing on the narrative. And so that's why you can do the song about the cuckoo bird at like an hour and 45 minutes and then do it again at two and a half hours because it's just a song and it has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> right. And it's also why like Miles Davis or, or John Coltrane can take uh, my favorite things and, and make, you know, a whole album out of it because, you know, it's, it's a great melody and it has no relation to the sound of music at all. Like it, it, it could be anything. Yeah, it really it could be anything. Um, well, what's funny to me is a uh, little background here is that I've never seen The Sound of Music. I didn't know the first thing about this movie. I went into this about as cold as you possibly could. And the shocking thing about this movie is I knew every song <laughs> like yeah. through through osmosis, through pop culture. You know, uh, I was I was absolutely stunned. Like, of course, I knew that the song The Sound of Music the hills are alive with the sound of music. I knew that was from this. I didn't know right, my favorite like the, the very the the very famous opening shot of the film. Right. Uh, I I knew that shot, but like mm -hmm. I didn't know my favorite things was from this. I didn't know doe, a deer, a female. I, yeah. I had no idea all of those disparate songs were from this one fucking movie. Yeah. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. No idea. And then it's all and then they all play out. But uh, yeah. Um, yeah, and my my fair lady is kind of the same way. Like it's just it's just packed with these songs that you know. How do I know it? I don't know how I know it, but it's, because I know they it. just they just exist in the culture and they're just yeah, they're just crazy. around. They're they're that popular. The difference is that in my fair lady, the songs are really good. <laughs> well, I you know we've probably lost all of our listeners here because they all you know probably love this movie, um, but I do want to say one positive thing about. The Sound of Music, and you, you hated this. I mean, I didn't like it. Mm -hmm. I I decidedly did not like it. I did not give it a good grade. I did. I you know I do not want to watch it again. Um, but you hated this more than I did. Uh, I really actually like Christopher Plummer here because he's he plays the the general or the captain or whatever he is. Yeah. Um, and he seems to be so at odds with this movie. Like you could see it in every scene he's in. He doesn't want to be here <laughs> he's he's really he's miscast for for an impossible part like there's right the, but there's, his the, miscasting is the most interesting and exciting thing about this movie yeah uh he's obvi obviously christopher Plummer is is a great actor and and seeing him this young is really it's is really interesting like like i thought i thought he he looked a lot like michael fassbender which was freaking me out a little bit there was, you know, I saw your letterbox review, and you yeah. you mentioned that in your review, um, or a comment on your review, uh, and so I had that in my mind as I went into it, and I mm. was like, I kind of don't see that, but there's one moment when he does his first solo where he picks up the guitar, sure, um, and there's like a three quarter shot of his face, and holy cow, it's like identical Michael Fassbender, yeah, like it's crazy, yeah, it's really crazy. That that was freaky, and and. Like he he does what he can, but but the captain there there's nothing there. He is he is a zero as oh, a character. Absolutely. And absolutely. Yeah, I mean. But I but I like but I like watching him because he's he's he realizes that too, and he's you know he, it looks to me like that he looks he, very uncomfortable. Yeah, and he's some sort of he's trying to break out somehow he's trying to do whatever he can to like 
save himself or the picture or i mean he probably didn't even care about the picture but you know yeah and like so, the the cast uh almost entirely are 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 very good like i i like julie andrews i think she has terrible hair in this movie but i think you know she's she's a good actress oh, yeah. uh I like Eleanor Parker as the other woman. I think I think she does pretty well with another uh, impossible part, and Richard Hayden as like the the friend. Uh, I think the the girl who plays Liesel is really pretty. <laughs> uh, she was probably my favorite part of the movie, but uh, the guy who plays her, the whole plot line around Liesel and her her boyfriend, the uh, the proto Nazi Rolf, is just appallingly bad. It's and 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 as you were saying about like no character development or or any sort of progression to the narrative, there are those threads in the movie that are abandoned, like completely yeah. abandoned for like an hour. Like she's like into this guy. They kind of have their song and dance, you know, everything's lovey-dovey. He comes back to the house once and and uh Christopher Plummer scares him away and then he's gone. And like <laughs> And there's no there's no progression to him. There's no why there's he no wants to be a Nazi. Him. There's no concern on her part, really. Like someone asks kind of flippantly, like, what happened to that dude? She's like, I don't know. And then like <laughs> then all of a sudden at the end, of course, he's the Nazi that finds them and stuff. But like, right. Yeah, there's no. And that 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 kid who plays Rolf is terrible. He's really bad. The He's the really one bad. the one scene that they have together, the uh, uh, 16 going on 17 number uh, is the one dance number that's kind of that's staged in an interesting way. And I think why shoots it really well. It's like, it's at night in this uh, glass gazebo and it's really, it's really lovely. The, the dance sequence and, and, and he and, uh, um, uh, Charmaine Carr, I think is her name, uh, dance it really well. Uh, but yeah, that he is not a good actor. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and he does, he's like the key figure at the end of the film, which I, I kept waiting for the Nazis to show up. Like the Nazis are Me hanging too. over the film Me for the, too. for the, the whole time. And as I'm re- in, in my memory of the film, like the Von Trapps versus the Nazis was like a key element of the plot. Uh, but that doesn't happen until there are 20 minutes left in a three hour yeah. movie. It's two and a half hours. It's literally two and a half hours into the movie, the Nazi show. And I did the same thing. I was like, when are these Nazis going to get here? Like, like the, the, the one scene of the wedding, like the shot of this like massive cathedral wedding, uh, it takes about as much screen time as the Von Trapps outwitting the Nazis. Uh, by the way, that wedding scene. Yeah. I think George Lucas may have ripped it off for the very end of Star Wars. Probably. Like it's, it's like shot for shot. I swear to God, uh, when they received their medals after you know uh, blowing up the Death Star, mm-hmm. I was totally thinking of that when I was watching the the wedding scene of Sound of Music. How about this? I, I think uh, when watching the uh, the very opening of the film, uh, as like the there's uh, like helicopter shots of the landscape and the music is warming up. It's it's uh, it is. Uh, Wagnerian, and it reminded me of the opening of of the, uh, Terrence Malick's The New World with the uh, the <laughs> Vorspiel from uh, from Das Rangold, uh, uh-huh. with like the the music starting, and then it, and then it builds and it builds and it builds, and, and then it's fucking the sound of music. The hills are alive, <laughs> and it's so overblown and so ridiculous. And uh, that's what that's what I was talking about when 
uh, talk, comparing it to Star Trek The Motion Picture because it's exactly that same kind of thing where, right. where Wise just takes this, you know, small genre material. Like, this could have been a delightful 90-minute film. Right. And then blows it up into this big bloated monstrosity that makes no sense and is, is just painful to watch. Yeah. I, yeah, I agree. I see that. Yeah. That's definitely the USS enterprise, uh, money shot. Uh, <laughs> this movie. Yeah. and, and yeah, I told, and, and when, when you're getting all these shots from the helicopter, the only thing running through my head is, you know, they probably paid a lot for this helicopter, and that's probably why they're including like it's like five minutes, it's like the overture, you know. But it's like right. five minutes of like I mean, it's gorgeous scenery, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's beautiful it's hills. Very beautiful. And, yeah. Um, but yeah, the only thing running through my mind is you know, and then you see like in the credits like helicopter footage, like you know, it was clear that it was a big budget kind of ticket item, and they had to, I don't know, eh, blah. Yeah, and I don't know. I, I I talked to my mom and I told her that that I watched this and. And I asked her, you know, why why she thought it was good, and she didn't really have any good reasons. Like, like she she was kind of complaining about it too. And and like the one the one thing she said she always didn't like about it was Christopher Plummer. And I was like, no. oh, I was like, um. I really liked him. But uh, you know, a, a lot of the the stuff that doesn't make sense, or like where where my mind was wandering in the long blank contentless spaces <laughs> of this film, were like. How old is the captain? Because if he was in, he was a captain in the Austrian Navy, then he had to be a captain by the end of World War One, because that was the last time Austria wasn't landlocked, which means he had to have been like in his 40s in 1918. And this film is taking place in 1938. So is he like 60 years old? And is Maria supposed to be like in her early 20s? And if so, that's kind of creepy, isn't it? And that is not explored <laughs> in the film at all either. And apparently my mom has been wondering the exact same thing for the last 50 years. Oh really? Yeah, and uh, and I looked it up, and, and this is of course based on a true story, and and the actual Captain Von Trapp was born in like 1888 or something, so he Whoa. was he was like 50 years old at, at the time. That's pretty creepy. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, this also you know what else this reminded me of was uh, and and this I this really feels like it, just a long episode of the Brady Bunch. Yeah. Um, and the Brady Bunch, despite your nostalgic, you know, uh, memories of, of the time that Greg, you know, had a hippie pad in the basement or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, is not a good show. No. Um, and so this is like a three hour episode of the Brady Bunch. And uh, I going back to the, the performances, um, I, I don't like child performers. Mm. Uh, and so. I have I ha that's another reason this is kind of intolerable for me is that you know Liesel's good you know she was I think in her early twenties when she made it so that's cool yeah. but like God that the youngest girl Gretel mm -hmm. like like you watch her and she's just like looking for approval in every shot of this movie and it's like disgusting yeah they're all they're all they're all kind of terrible they're all and, kind and they of have terrible. they have they really have no personality. At all? No, all bland. Yeah, all of them. They're they're interchangeable. There's no personality. There's a point when Julie Andrews. It's kind of a meta moment where she she can't even remember the name of one of them, and it's like, well, yeah, they're all interchangeable. Yeah, you know? she, she like forgets the name of the second boy, and they're like, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm I forgot you. there was a second boy. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. What do, what do you think of Julie Andrews? I like Julie. I mean, so, you know, what Julie Andrews is trying to sell me, you know, I, is not necessarily something I need, but <laughs> she's really good at it. Like, yeah. I, I mean, she's Julie Andrews was designed for this kind of thing. You know what I mean? And so she's really good at that. Um, see, she's I, not, I, so, like if you see her in something like Torn Curtain or something like that, I prefer her in Torn Curtain. I prefer her in Mary Poppins. I, well, I think, oh, Mary Poppins, come on. I think uh, that Mary Poppins has has a bit of an edge that Maria does not, and I think Julie Andrews does too. And I think this kind of open simplicity about Maria doesn't seem quite right for Julie Andrews to me. Well, I, I concur on. Um, Mary Poppins. I mean, it's funny because I mean, I, I'm sure everybody's made that connection before, but I mean, you know, both these those movies have so much in common in so many ways in terms of being like a nanny and it's a musical and it's a big you know projection and all that stuff. But uh, yeah, uh, Mary Poppins gets it right. It's it's so much better, and it's like half the length too. It's still pretty long, it, it, but it, but it's like an hour shorter. It's like two hours and twenty minutes or something like that. But really, it's that long. Yeah. Well, it doesn't feel that long. Exactly. Well, dancing penguins go a long way, my friend. And you know, thematically, it, it's it's much the same. It's, it's so much more effective because that 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 film is also about the melting of a Victorian era patriarch into spending time with his kids. Which right. the sound of music, ostensibly, is about too. But there's so much more to the sound of music, and it's so much more interesting the way it goes about that and kind of creating this world and exploring this this family relationship in a a time of the distant past, which was less distant at the time it was being made, but it was still distant. Sure, it was, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. The Sound of Music is not interested in any of that. Like, it is... I don't know what... I don't know what this movie is for. I don't... Why? 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 <laughs> I, I told you before we started, my notes for this, it consists of, of three words. So what? Why? And Mom! Shaking my uh, <laughs> well, I find this interesting too. You know, we've we've talked about over the course of the last eight months or so, we've done a number of shows with a 1965 film in them. Mm -hmm. uh, we did Doctor Zhivago, we did Darling, we mm -hmm. did Alphaville, we did um, something else I can't remember right now, but we've done a several several movies, and for the most part. I'm pretty lukewarm on our uh, 1960. Obviously, the, the 65 films that we've seen and we love, and we'll get into those at the end of the year um, when we do our awards and stuff like that. But uh, my confidence for the the year 1965 in cinema not very strong, well, based I, upon what we've watched on the George Sanders show, at least. I'll tell you what this this made me like Doctor Zhivago a lot more. Yeah than I did when we watched it before. Uh, and I, you know, I, I would have been rooting for Dr. Zhivago at the, uh, at the Academy Awards that year. Because <laughs> it, was, it was the big showdown. They were both sure. nominated for everything. And, and they were both, you know, huge box office smashes. Uh, I don't think there's anything The Sound of Music does better than Dr. Zhivago. I think the music is better in Dr. Zhivago than in The Sound of Music. And if that doesn't uh, put the nail in the Sound of Music's coffin, I don't know what does. Yeah, seriously. Well, you know what the final nail is? What? Another Rodgers and Hart tune. Yeah. 
Uh, I lost my notes. What it's Ella Fitzgerald, right? That's what we're going. Yeah, with this is. Uh, you took advantage of me because <laughs> obviously. Damn you, Robert Wise. <laughs> I'm a sentimental sap. That's all. What's the use of trying not to fall? I have no will. You've made your kill because you took advantage of me. Just like an apple on a bough And you're gonna shake me down somehow So what's the use you've cooked my goose Cause you took advantage of me I'm so hot and bothered that I don't know My elbow from my ear I suffer something awful time you go and much worse when you're near here am i with all my bridges burned just a babe in arms where you're concerned so lock the doors and call me yours cause you took advantage of me i'm a sentimental sap that's all What's the use of trying not to fall? I have no will, you've made your kill Cause you took advantage of me I'm just like an apple on a bough And you're gonna shake me down somehow So what's the use, you've cooked my goose because you took of me. All right, so we've got the month of September planned out. We're going to do our, our annual uh, Sight and Sound show on Labor Day weekend where we like nominate 10 films, and after 10 years, we will have like a top 100 films. Uh, we're going to do that on Labor Day, and then two weeks after that will be our Vancouver Film Festival preview episode, and then the episode after that will actually be in Vancouver. Uh, but what we didn't have was was something for the next show that we're doing the week of uh, of August twenty first. Uh, we looked at the releases a, a couple a month ago, uh, six weeks ago, and uh, the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon sequel was supposed to come out then, but that's since been bumped to twenty sixteen. So there's really nothing of interest coming out on the twenty first. So we were kicking around some ideas around that time. Uh, uh, the new Noah Baumbach, uh, Greta Gerwig movie is coming out. So we thought about uh, a Gerwig-Swanberg thing, but neither of us are really into that. Uh, there's uh, uh, Takashi Murakami's film Jellyfish Eyes is coming out in Seattle on the 21st. So we thought about some, some anime. Uh, I really wanted to see Satoshi Kon's Millennium Actress, which is the only one of his features I haven't seen. So I uh, proposed a, a Millennium Actress and Neo Tokyo uh, double feature, but it turns out you had already seen Millennium Actress. So we want to watch movies that we hadn't seen before. Uh, the week after Jellyfish Eyes plays at the Grand Illusion, they're playing uh, uh, J.P. Sinodecki's uh, The Iron Ministry. So I thought maybe uh, uh, documentaries where we'd watch something else from the sensory ethnography lab along with uh, uh, like Manakamana, which I haven't seen, along with Robert Flaherty's Man of Aaron, because they both have man in the title. <laughs> uh, 
but it turns out you had also seen Manakamana. So uh, in giving up, we just decided to do Manavaran and Neo Tokyo. And maybe yeah. they'll have something in common. We'll find out. And I'd like to say to our listeners out there that you just sat through that like five minute explanation. But for me, you had it to was live more it. like five hours <laughs> of text messages back and forth between me and Sean. And I was in a meeting and it was just like, how about this? And my, I'm sitting there and I'm being called on in this meeting and my phone is buzzing in my pocket. So you got off easy. Yeah. That's what I'm saying, people, you got off easy. Yeah, uh, it's not, it's not a, a happy place to be inside the, the planning <laughs> of the George Sanders show. It's a struggle, man. Yeah, a lot of work goes into this every week. Yeah, and then we end up picking like two of the most obscure titles you could possibly imagine. And then uh, we wonder why our listeners, you know, our, our number of listeners never goes higher. Than... <laughs> to, to be fair, we never wonder that. That's true. Yeah. I don't even I don't even know how I would find out. But that, <laughs> there it is. But anyway... Uh, so that'll be fun. Um, here's here's my long-winded story, okay. if you if you may permit me. Sure. Um, so I I get a text from my older brother Sean, uh, different spelling, hmm. more more handsome. Uh, sure. The other day, yeah. Um, he lives in San Francisco, and he texts me. He says, "Hey, did you get anything in the mail?" I'm like, "No." <laughs> And he's like, oh, well, I don't want to ruin someone else's surprise. And I'm like, well, what the hell is that about? Anyway, two days later, I get a, a wedding invitation uh, from my stepbrother, Rich. Uh, and this is this is like, I don't know, 12 days ago, something like that. Uh, for a wedding that's happening, uh, he and his, his partner, longtime partner, they've been together for over a decade, Jana and him are, are getting together and uh, getting married. Uh, and I get a wedding invitation on like July 26th for a wedding on August 15th <laughs> in California. And it says, please RSVP by July 31st. And I'm like, what the? Like, you've been together for like 12 years. Why all of a sudden? Did you, you, know? did you check the date? Is it like August 2016? No, no, it's 2015, my friend. Okay. Uh, so I'm like, what the hell? Anyway, luckily I have that weekend off and I was able to find like a last minute cheap flight or whatever. So anyway, I'm going to California uh, next weekend for 46. I'll be there for 46 hours <laughs> to go to this wedding. Anyway, first thought after buying a plane ticket is clearly, hey, what movies are playing when I'm down in the Bay Area? Right. Of course. Because you're not going to be spending all 46 hours at a wedding. Fuck no. <laughs> I might not even go to the wedding because listen to this. There's there's some great stuff going on when I'm down there. Uh, uh, that weekend at the Stanford Theater in Palo Alto, double feature 35 millimeter Rashomon Throne of Blood. What? That sounds awesome. I have seen that double feature. I know you have. You talk about it like every other episode of the show. <laughs> um, and then at the Walt Disney Family Museum, which is at the Presidio in San Francisco. Great place. I've talked about it before. Um, I talk about it in every other show. They're doing... Uh, not only are they showing Sleeping Beauty, which is your favorite Disney animated feature, Sean. Um, True. But, yeah, uh, I, I pay attention. Yeah. Uh, um, but they're also doing this uh, month-long kind of exhibit about uh, Walt Disney's collaboration with Salvador Dali, and uh, which resulted in Destino, which came out, you know, after both of them were dead. Anyway, long story short, 
uh, they're showing movies that were uh, some of Salvador Dali's favorite films. So the Sunday that I'm there in San Francisco, the day I fly back, they're doing a double feature of Sleeping Beauty and the Marx Brothers Animal Crackers. Whoa. That is like Mike Central. Yeah. I mean, what the hell? So I may just ditch the wedding and go to these movies, but, you know, whatever. Yeah, I, I, that's what I would do. Yeah. <laughs> I know, Probably. right? You know, they'll get married another time. Yeah, right. Uh, well, in uh, I don't have a long story to go around my pick, but uh, in, in Boston at the Harvard Film Archive right now is in the middle of a complete Samuel Fuller retrospective, and it looks pretty awesome. It's been going on since June. And uh, it's coming towards the end now. Um, uh, playing tomorrow, August 6th, which will probably be before anyone actually <laughs> hears this, is, uh, is Park Row, which is uh, Fuller's film about, about journalism in the 19th century. It's, it's one of Fuller's very best films. Uh, so if, you, if I do somehow manage to get the show up before then and you listen to this before that, uh, don't miss Park Row. But, but coming up... Uh, on Friday and Saturday, the 21st and 22nd, are uh, the Steel Helmet and the Big Red One. Uh, all of these on on 35 millimeter. Uh, Steel Helmet is about the Korean War, and the Big Red One is uh, is based on Fuller's own experience in World War II. And they are both uh, amazing movies. Uh, two of the best war movies ever made, and you definitely do not want to miss them. Has White Dog already played? Yes. Curses. Yes, they still have uh, Shot Corridor is coming up, uh, Verboten, Shark, Scandal Sheet. I saw it. I shot Jesse James. Uh, China Gate is coming up on Monday the tenth. Uh, that is a really interesting film set in uh, uh, Indochina, kind of before the Vietnam War, but yeah, it's, it's from nineteen fifty seven. So it, it's set in Vietnam before like the actual U.S legitimate involvement in Vietnam. I don't know how to phrase that properly. <laughs> but it's a it's a really, really good movie with a, with a great performance from Angie Dickinson and Nat King Cole is in it and sings the theme song. And it's a, it's a really cool movie. I, I've only ever seen it cropped to 133, but they're playing in 35, so I assume it's the, the correct aspect ratio. So that would be very neat to see as well. That would be neat. You can't go wrong with Samuel Fuller. No, you, you really can't. He is amazing. Yeah. So uh, that sounds totally awesome. And uh, if you want to find out more about us and this show, you can go to the georgesandershow.blogspot.com uh, or you can go to seattlescreenscene.com where we write about new releases and rep stuff that's playing in and around Seattle. We have a Twitter account, Show at Show. I think with the, the correct parlance. And uh, we have an email account, the George Sanders show at gmail.com. Uh, and I think we're, we're letting George have the night off uh, this time. And we're going to go, we, we were hoping we could find George Sanders singing the Rogers and Hart songbook, but that uh, proved impossible. Yeah, yeah. As far as we could tell, none of the songs that the George Sanders touch recorded were Rogers and Hart. So uh, it only exists in our dreams. Yes. <laughs> but uh, what are we doing? Miles Davis? Who are we doing? Uh, this is uh, Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered by, I think, uh, Anita O'Day. Oh, that sounds good on. to me. Yeah, yeah, there you go. I love Anita O'Day. Yeah, why not? Yeah.
So until next time, I don't know. Uh, be nice to each other. Be excellent to each other. And party on, dudes. Climb every mountain. <laughs>
My sound of music story. Sure. When I was in, I don't know, senior year of high school, my friends and I, as I think everybody did, you know, at one point they got a camcorder and they just, you know, spent like a couple of weeks filming a bunch of stupid stuff. Um, and so, and we just, I mean, when I say stupid stuff, I mean like really stupid stuff. But we were walking around with this video camera and we found at the top of this hill in the suburbs, we found this chair just sitting. <laughs> sitting on this like dirt hill and 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 we totally kind of improvised this thing but we my friend sat down in the chair and I was filming from about 10 feet away and he sits there and and he sits in this chair and then he gets up and he starts and he starts just screaming to the heavens he goes the hills are alive with the sound and then and then he goes of hardcore music, and then we all started like moshing in front of the camera, um, <laughs> with the camera like moshing with everybody, and you just see these screaming teenage faces as we create this dust cloud around us, and uh, it was pretty awesome. Yeah, I'd rather watch that. <laughs> I it's one of those things that you know I it's it's lost to the ages. You know, it's it's like the original cut of the Magnificent Ambersons. It's gone, but uh, God, it was really stupid. But we also lit stuff on fire too later that day, so it was very a Beavis and Butthead kind of experience. That is how I imagine you're used. <laughs> <I know. laughs> oh, well, I leave you with that. All right. All right. Bye. <laughs>